we have come as far as, far as verse 13, but let's read from the beginning of the chapter. This is parable of the sower, part 2. In uh, Mark 4 and verse 1, it says, Again he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns And the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground, yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable, and he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables." So that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And then this is where we begin today. He said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground, those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. Jesus speaks in parables. A parable, and we had a couple of definitions, simple definitions of parables, a brief story that is true to life given for the purpose of teaching some spiritual truth, or A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Goebel says the parable, it is supposed, is meant to do two things, namely to reveal the truth to the receptive and to conceal it from the unreceptive. Jesus explained to his disciples his main reason for using parables by quoting Isaiah concerning the people seeing and not perceiving and hearing and not understanding. Many of the people that Jesus has been speaking to are extremely hostile to the things he has been saying. I don't think we always catch the real atmosphere of what's going on at this time in Jesus' ministry. There is a lot of opposition to him, and that's why he begins using these parables. It's not just that they do not understand or are confused. They do understand what he's speaking when he speaks in plain language, and they are furious with him boiling over with anger. He's upsetting their notions of what it means to serve God. He's been opposing their rituals and traditions by which they consider themselves to be righteous. 
has been opposing them both by his words and his deeds. And they are against him to the point of seeking to destroy him. They've begun plotting to kill him and to rid their religious observances of his influence and criticism. Jesus has been calling them to repent, and they don't need repentance in their own judgment. They simply need to be rid of this troublemaker who is making them look bad in the eyes of the people. What they do not perceive or understand is the reality of the situation. This is where they are blind and deaf. They do not believe that Jesus is sent by their God. They do not understand that he is the one who was promised in the law and the prophets, and that it is him to whom they are to bow the knee, and it is him whom they are to confess to be their Lord and God. They don't understand that they can never be pleasing to God through their rules and rituals. This is the tragedy of that generation, and the reason Jesus wept over Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 19, verse 41, this is after the triumphal entry, it says, As he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. He was not happy about the condition of the city. He wasn't gloating and saying, oh boy, now I get to really carry out some judgment here. He was weeping over the condition of Jerusalem, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Here's that blindness again. Why Why was it hidden from their eyes? Because they had rejected him. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Great sorrow upon God's heart for their rejection. The nation at large rejected Jesus, and they suffered the consequences of that rejection. In Romans 11 and verse 25, Paul says, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Because they rejected Jesus, there's this blindness that remains upon uh, the Jewish people today. Um, 2 Corinthians 3, I think, talks about if they, when they turn to the Spirit, the veil is taken away when they turn to the Lord. Why the blindness? He tells us why in Romans 10, verses 3 and 4. They, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Over in John chapter 1, verse 10, it says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. There was that remnant of Israel that did believe. Blindness in part happened to Israel. And the rest entered in to the new covenant. And a lot of Gentiles were added. Verse 13, it says, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now look, the ones opposing Jesus' words are among the most religious people on the planet. And they thought they were pleasing to God and that he was not. That's the ultimate in blindness. Lord, open our eyes so that we might see all things clearly. Let us not be full of pride and presumptuousness. 
Jesus later explains this parable to his disciples. They did not understand the meaning of the parable either. But it is given to them to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. It is given to them because they have received him and his teachings. He says later that to those who have, more will be given. To those who do not have, even what they have will be taken away. The response to the seed or the word is vital. And it's the key to understanding and fruitfulness. Jesus gives his followers the explanation of the parable and indicates that the explanation of this parable will help them in understanding the other parables. The sower sows the word. The sower in this parable is Jesus, who has been proclaiming the truth of the gospel of the kingdom. But secondarily, it is anyone who sows the seed of the word of God. We see this as we continue on through the, the New Testament. The seed sown is the word of God, specifically the gospel in this context. It's important to recognize there is only one seed. It is the word of God. It is to be a pure seed. It does not need genetic engineering to make it more fruitful. seems like men are always trying to improve upon God's word. It's the same seed or message for everyone and every culture. Uh, the Lord may lead a in a different type of presentation for a different culture, but it has to be the same message. There's only one gospel. See Galatians. There are no hybrids of the seed allowed. And we go down in, in the river bottoms riding bikes. A lot of times there are a lot of crops down there. And at the end of certain rows you'll have you know, a sign that tells you what company's seed it is and what particular type of seed it is. Because they're, they're always experimenting and hybridizing and getting them different. The, the Word of God, there are no hybrids. It is the way it is. It has to be accepted as it is or rejected as it is. Adam Clark says, if the seed is the word and every preacher, if the seed is the word, then every preacher must make sure he uses good seed. It is a high offense against God to change the master's seed, to mix it, or to sow bad seed in the place of it. To alter the seed is to make it something else. It's no longer the pure word of God. In Psalm 12 verses 6 and 7, we're told the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord, you shall preserve them from this generation forever. So the seed does not need to be altered for different soils. The differences are in the soil, not in the seed. Indeed, to do so would invalidate the seed. In other words, the seed is not soil sensitive. That's sort of a parable in itself. You can kind of think. The soil must adapt itself to the seed and not vice versa. The soil must receive the seed, the word of God, for what it is. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23, Peter talks about us having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. In James 1.21, we're told, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. The word must be received by the soil. If the word is not implanted, it cannot grow and bring forth fruit to God. The first instance Jesus describes is the seed that falls by the wayside. This word usually refers to a traveled area. 
We might think of a path or a road. The seed falls on the ground, but it remains on the surface of a hard or packed soil. It does not germinate, but instead it is eaten by the birds. The seed does not penetrate the surface of the ground. This is hard soil, a hardened heart. We're told in Matthew that in this case, the word of the kingdom is heard, but there is no understanding. This may be the case with a person numerous times before the word is understood and a conscious decision must be made concerning the message. The seed falling here and being snatched away is not necessarily the end of the matter. The Lord will work to bring the person to an awareness of their condition and their need, and this can be a painful experience. It's like, you know, he tells us to break up the fallow ground. If, if the soil could feel, how would it feel being plowed up? And the Lord will use the plow in an effort to get people to receive the seed. God's willing to put a person through a temporary time of turmoil for an eternal end. But we see also the role of the devil in seeking to prevent a person from understanding and receiving the truth. He uses all his toolbox of lies to obscure the message and prevent a person from receiving the seed of the word. And so a prayer for the lost is vital that they might be able to receive that seed and be in a position to do so, their hearts being open, ready to receive what the gospel says to them. But the Lord's continually working on the hearts of men. God is always working, and he's always dealing with men to draw them to Jesus. He's speaking to them by his Spirit. In John chapter 16, Jesus speaking to the apostles of verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So the Holy Spirit, Jesus, is going to sin. He's going to carry out the role that Jesus has been carrying out in the world. The work which Jesus has done in the world is now done by the Spirit. It's up to men to respond to the work of the Spirit on their hearts. Men are responsible to respond to the hearing of the Word of God. Jesus says we must take heed what we hear and how we hear. And with this first soil, there's no understanding and no response. There's no fruit that comes from this hard ground. Well, the next soil is stony ground. It's a shallow layer of soil upon rock. Not totally hard, but receptive on the surface and stony underneath. These hear the word and get excited, but their enthusiasm is short-lived. For these, their faith proves to be a phase or a fad. They receive the word. They exhibit faith of a sort, but it is not a faith that endures. It is a faith that is based on unrealistic expectations. William MacDonald says, perhaps in the emotion of a fervent gospel appeal, he makes a profession of faith in Christ, this one on stony ground. 
but it's just a mental assent. There's no real commitment of the person to Christ. He receives the word with gladness. It would be better if he received it with deep repentance and contrition. He seems to go on brightly for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises because of his profession, you know, it's because of the word of God that this arises. He decides that the cost is too great. And he abandons the whole thing. He claims to be a Christian as long as it is popular to do so. But persecution exposes his unreality. When difficulties arise, there's no longer a belief in the message of the gospel. These are the people you may have, who you may have heard say, I tried Christianity, or I tried Jesus, but it didn't work for me. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. It's usually quoted a bit differently, like Christianity has not been tried and found difficult. It's been found difficult and left untried. Hebrews 11.6 tells us, Without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. When persecution or trouble comes, do you still believe he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him? At what point does this become untrue for you? Faith must be genuine and must continue. And I'm saying that redundantly. (laughs) Faith that is genuine does continue. But faith must be genuine and must continue in order for the seed to bear fruit. Colossians chapter 1 verses 21 through 23. He says, You who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and indeed or an above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Hebrews 3.14, he says, We have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Have we become partakers? Well, it's proven by the continuance in that. And you'll see other passages that indicate the same thing. Now, it's not that you're saved by persevering to the end. It is that your faith is proven genuine by your continuance in following Jesus. But merely continuing does not prove the genuineness of faith. It is continuing in the faith, not continuing in the church, let's say, not continuing in hanging out with believers, not any continuing other than continuing and walking by faith in the way of the Lord Jesus. You know, I've talked before about um, you know, backsliding. We consider mostly backsliding people just going out and living in the world again. But it's very possible to do what I refer to as backsliding in place. You're in the church. You're going through all the motions, doing all the things that everybody else is doing, but you're not really following Jesus at that point. You're just living your life and doing whatever, you know, seems like a great thing to do at the time. And, it's you know, it's great company and fellowship to hang out with believers and hang out with the church. But there has to be more than that. It has to be a continuing in the faith of following Jesus. And that's that faith is proven faith. And your faith will be tested. There is no genuine faith that will not be tested. Maybe some false faith, you know, 
Well, see, the devil doesn't really like to attack people that aren't following Jesus because he doesn't want to stir up anything. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Paul, or Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The fire will come. It will test your faith of what sort it is. The stone, this stony soil has or has been given perhaps false expectations of what the Christian life should be like. We may fault the way in which the gospel is presented in our nation. Come to Jesus and all your problems will be over. Nothing bad will ever happen to you again. Everything will be great. Your problems with God will be over, yes. And that's the problem the gospel solves. You're reconciled with God for all eternity through Jesus. All the other problems are temporary. The eternal problem is solved, but it does not guarantee your best life now. In fact, unbelievers have their best life now, no matter how bad it is. And believers have their worst life now, no matter how great their life is. We have this health and wealth gospel, which is not true to the gospel at all. We are told that we will have tribulation and persecution if we are true to the Lord. And this tribulation and persecution may be severe, as we've, we see around the world in, in our brothers and sisters. It may be very subtle, shunning, you know, ridicule. Those types of things, but those things will come. In fact, when someone believes, the enemy begins to attack them in earnest. Now, grace is abundant. I think for a new believer, the grace is just overflowing from the Lord. But the enemy wants to destroy that one to make them unfruitful before they, they proceed. And so he begins to attack at that point in earnest. When a person's lost, the enemy doesn't need to oppose them. That status quo is good. They're in his camp. He doesn't want to alert them to their need of salvation. And so the devil emphasizes the pleasures of the world. Look at all the world has to give. Enjoy. Look at the response of the early believers to persecution in Acts chapter 8. Beginning of the chapter, it says, Paul was consenting to his death. Stephen's martyrdom. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And here are the ones who go out. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. I mean, they're persecuted, they're driven out, away from their homes, out of their city. And what are they doing? They're scattering uh, everywhere, preaching the word. They're carrying the gospel with them. The seed of the word is being distributed, is being spread. They went everywhere scattering the seed. They were scattered so the seed would be scattered. They were told that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world but they were holed up in Jerusalem until this wave of persecution hit. Consider this word to the Hebrews in chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews. 
Verse 32, he says, Recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. Wow. Will I joyfully accept the plundering of my goods? They're, they're commended for doing so. These, these are temporal blessings, right? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. See, there's a contrast between possessions on earth and possessions in heaven. And he's talking about those possessions here. Then he says, do not... Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul, the continuance of that faith again. So we come to the third ground, seed that falls among the thorny bushes. These also receive the seed, but the seed has intense competition from other plants that are in the ground. I heard recently that uh, every acre of ground contains 3,000 pounds of weed seed. I mean, it's just there. You don't have to sow it or plant it or anything. It just you know, and, and isn't that like the world? I mean, we're scattering the seed, but there's already 3,000 pounds per acre of, of weedy stuff out there that would like to choke out the gospel, would like to choke out that seed. Which crop will prosper? That's the question here. Which will succumb to the competition? Jesus mentions three thorny growths as a warning of things to avoid. These are things that can choke the seed of the word so that it does not bear fruit. The first one is cares of this world, the necessities of life, the things you must have to live in this world. Everyone has these cares. No one is exempt. You have to eat. You have to have clothing. You have to have shelter in most places. You may have trouble making ends meet. There's too much month at the end of your money. These these concerns may become overwhelming to the point where your focus is continually upon these things and these concerns begin to choke the Word. Once again, we see a testing of our faith in the Word we have received. Jesus gave a warning concerning these cares and His coming in Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 33. He says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will by no means pass away. Better to cling to his words than to cling to heaven and earth. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, I mean, well, no, none of that stuff, and cares of this life. And that day come up upon you unexpectedly. So we don't want to be distracted by the everyday and that become greater than following Jesus. 
He says, For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. I think obviously he's talking about the rapture of the church there. So one crippling emotion is anxiety about these cares. When it says the cares of this life, that's actually related to the word for anxiety that's used in, as we'll see in Philippians 4. We can be emotionally distraught and struggle to trust God for his provision. We may feel we have to take action for our plight. There's a time when action is appropriate, but there may be a time when action is not possible as well. We may be tempted to take matters into our own hands and knock over the piggly wiggly. <laughs> or less drastic measures. We may use less drastic measures, but th there's the same inner motivation to place my trust in something other than the Lord. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus addresses this in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 31, Therefore do not worry. Be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? And he just talked about those things. You know, these are the things the Gentiles are seeking after. For all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. The problem with each of these thorns that Jesus discusses is when they become the primary thing, and displace faith in the gospel of Jesus. When they become the focus of my life rather than him being the focus, the hope, and the life. Verse 34, he says, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. How many of our worries are beyond today? And then, as I mentioned, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, we're told. And Paul gives his antidote for anxiety here. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Even if you struggle with worry, I think many of us do, maybe most of us do. The Lord knows it's a, a common thing uh, in a fallen creation. Even if you struggle with it, don't let it choke out your faith. Continue in following Jesus and allow him to make a way, sometimes where there is no way. He's promised, and he will be faithful to his promise. The second thing Jesus talks about, this thorny thing, is deceitfulness of riches. Now, this is pertinent for all who live in the U.S. and many other places in the world. We have an abundance of material things. Maybe I'm no longer struggling with the day-to-day -day sustenance. Now I'm going for the American dream or whatever dream I envision. I'm looking to get ahead in the world, and I'm looking for security for the future. This is the deceitfulness of riches, this security. I want to improve my standard of living. Now, I'm not saying this is not good or legitimate even, but there is a danger here that the Lord is warning us about. Wealth can be deceitful, and particularly the pursuit of that wealth. It doesn't provide the security we may think it does. And trusting in it will rob us of the true security of abiding in Jesus. 
Uh, Paul addresses this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, starting in verse 6, he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. You know, you heard you can't take it with you, and that's true. But we we'll say you can send it ahead. <laughs> Lay up treasures in heaven, Jesus will tell us. You know, there's a story told about a guy who he was told you can't take it with you, and so he was working through with some uh, religious people, and they figured out a way that he could actually take a suitcase of gold to heaven with him. And so this was all okayed, and he gets to the pearly gates, you know, and they're looking at his luggage. And they say, well, what'd you bring, you know? And he opens it, and it's full of gold. And they say, why'd you bring paving material? (laughs) Verse 8, having food and clothing with all these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich, so it's this pursuit, they fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts or desires which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, often misquoted as it is the root of all evil, but it's love of money is a root of all kinds of evil from which, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness. The thorns have choked the seed, and they've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness, very similar to the fruit of the Spirit that's given to us in Galatians 5. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Later in verses 17 uh, through 19 of 1 Timothy 6, he says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. There were people who were wealthy who might be in the church. He says, well, give them this command. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. We see again this idea of storing something up somewhere else, not here. In Matthew chapter 6, again the Sermon on the Mount earlier in verse 19, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. There's a fleeting security in these things. They can all be taken away uh, quickly, very quickly. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. I was reading a sermon by Francis Schaeffer recently. It's called Ash Heap Lives. And... uh, I'm going to read an excerpt from it, but it's well worth looking up and either reading or I think there may be a YouTube video of it. And and it's all about the ash heap lives. It's all about uh, the material possessions that are all going to wind up being destroyed, either during our life or after we're gone or, or at the judgment. I mean, many things we wear out, right? One of the things about the millennium that Isaiah talks about, he says, 
that the people will wear out the work of their hands um, because they will live so long, you know. But uh, for us, many times it's rust, uh, things that decay, and so we're replacing things, right? And some things have designed obsolescence, you know, especially in the modern age. They're like, well, we sold this freezer and it lasted 50 years. That's not really helping our bottom line, so we'll make our freezers only last five years or ten years. So these ash heap lives is what he's talking about. And he's speaking of this not laying up for yourselves treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. And he says this statement is to be taken literally. Jesus never uttered a mere, he never uttered mere God words. This is what Damien Kyle calls plaque material. You know, we, we get these verses and he says, well, it's not just plaque material. You know, it's really supposed to be something we pay attention to. Uh, Francis goes on to say, liberal theologians with the concept of realized eschatology consider this only a way of stirring up motivation for the present life. But this is not the Bible's perspective. Jesus was not merely making a psychological adjustment inside a man's head. He was telling us that in actual fact, we can lay up our treasure in one of two places. In one place, it will assuredly rot away. In the other, it will never decay. We can lay up our money in land or investments, but we can lay it up just as realistically and objectively in heaven. It is as though Jesus had mentioned the First National Bank of New York as opposed to the Banque Suisse and said that you can choose to make your investments in either America or Switzerland. The perspective of our lives should be that we can lay up treasure in one of two places, earth or heaven. He goes on to say these are strong words. A man is a fool to put money in a bank that is not going to last when he can deposit it in a bank that will. This is this entire sermon is, is worth looking at. It's, it was published in his book, No Little People. And if you have that book, you can, you can find it there. It's the last one in the book, I think. So Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this is what God's aiming for. He doesn't want your treasure. He doesn't need your treasure. He's got, he, he provided all the treasure. He's got all the treasure he, he needs or wants. And he can always make more treasure if he needs more treasure. He's not concerned about your treasure, but he does want, he even demands your heart, that your heart be his and your heart be fully his. And then uh, the last part of verse 24, he says, you cannot serve God and mammon. Then in Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells another parable about this idea of wealth. In verse 15, he says to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. That's the attitude of the world, right? Your life consists of the it consists of the abundance of the things that you possess. And so you got the slogan, He who dies with the most toys wins. You know? Not really. You know, he who dies with the most toys is not going to be winning. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? Well, he's already got barns because he's going to tear down his barns and build bigger barns. Right? So what can he do with this leftover stuff? He can tear down his barns and build bigger barns, or he could 
give it away. He thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? I mean, that's plentiful yielding. What a blessing. So he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat. Drink. Be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? And he says, So is he who lays treasure up for himself and is not rich toward God. All material wealth and possessions are temporary. They will perish. They will burn. This was a saying in the early Jesus movement, you know, uh, one of the Isaac Airfreight comedy sketches, you know, they're talking about. Um, if you become a believer, soon you too will be saying, praise the Lord, hallelujah, and it's all going to burn. <laughs> because that is what's going to happen. It's all going to burn in the end. Don't put your confidence in those things. The treasures you send ahead are eternal and are of great reward. And then the third thorny thing that you're to avoid is desires for other things. Now, these are not just desires for evil things. It's, you know, they're natural, normal desires of things that, you know, we, we have and legitimate things even. But this covers everything else that might take precedence over serving the Lord Jesus. Sometimes there are things that appear more attractive than Jesus, more attractive than the Bible, more attractive than church. You know, the world has a lot of fascinating things out there, and not all of them are evil. And you know, they'll uh, produce some good things concerning relationships and love and so forth. But we don't want to displace the things of the Lord with those things. There are a lot of attractions out there in the world. Jesus must remain first in our lives. He must retain the preeminence. He is preeminent over all creation. Will he also be in our daily lives? In Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26, the psalmist here has, uh, this is the psalm where he says, I almost stumbled because he saw the prosperity of the wicked. And those who were not wicked were not doing so good. And it comes down to verse 25. And again, the whole psalm is worth um, spending some time with. He says in verse 25, whom have, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So we see that contrast of eternal versus temporal blessings or pleasures. So these three things can literally choke the life out of the crop of the Word. It becomes unfruitful. These things can strangle the seed of the Word. And finally, we come to the good ground, which all of you are. These hear and accept the Word. They receive it with faith and continue in it. They bear fruit. Abiding by faith produces fruit. To abide is to stay, remain, or continue John 15, verses 4 and 5, Jesus tells the apostles, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me 
you can do nothing. We must remain connected to the vine if we are to bear fruit. We have no fruit of our own to offer. I guess, you know, maybe rotten fruit would be the only fruit that would come from our own nature. If we cut ourselves off from the vine, we will dry up and wither. Now, I've said a lot of things about different parts of this parable, but there is one emphasis of the story. As the seed is scattered by the sower, the type of ground it encounters determines whether it bears fruit for God and how much. There are a couple of takeaways here, lessons. First, sow the seed. We are also sowers of the seed of the gospel of grace in partnership with God. First Corinthians 3, Paul refers to himself and Apollos as planters and waterers. That's First Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 8. Who then is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers, servants, through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one? I planted Apollos water. This is in Corinth. But God gave the increase. God's the only one who can bring forth fruit and give the increase. But he's got planters and he's got waterers. So then neither he who plants is anything can't give the increase, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So we also are those who scatter the seed of God's word. If the seed is not scattered, it cannot germinate, grow, and bear fruit. David Guzik says, we learn something else here. It is by preaching that the seed is sown. You can study the seed categorize the seed, analyze the seed, know the seed, or even love the seed. But if you don't sow it, nothing will grow. Sow the seed. Scatter it abroad. Spread it everywhere. Throw it to the wind. Let God manage the crop. It is the word of life. And don't be stingy with it. If you're timid in speaking to others about Jesus, use literature. Gospel tracts are a very good tool. You can leave it behind. You can leave it with a tip. You can just tell somebody, here's something you know interesting to read, and then leave that in the Lord's hands. The seed has a result when it is sown. The result depends upon the response of the ground to the seed. When the word is received as it should be, something happens. Fruit is produced. If nothing happens, then the word is not being received as it should. If the seed is received in faith by the ground, the Lord will be faithful to water and nurture the seed to bring forth fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. We're told in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to Everyone, for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. This word in itself is the power of God to salvation for those who believe it. And they can't believe it if it's not out there for them. In Romans 10:17, he says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The second takeaway is that a person's responsible to receive the Word of God in faith and follow and serve the Lord Jesus. We must be aware of our heart's response to the Word of God even after we have received the Word by faith. How are we responding in the face of persecution or tribulation? 
What's the condition of our heart in relation to the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things? Are we abiding in Christ Jesus? We want the seed of the word to bear maximum fruit to the Lord. We desire to have ears to hear what the Spirit says and a heart that is tender and soft to the word of God. I must beware and be aware of the danger of being unreceptive soil. Receive the seed of the word of God. Abide in the vine. That is, allow yourself to be fertilized and watered. Act upon the word of God. Pray for fruitfulness. You can know that that is a prayer that the Lord desires to answer.